One of you was speaking earlier this week about visiting the Owenston Lake Museum for the first time. And taking time to reflect on Link's photographs, you felt a sense of awe. We too, if we've seen those pictures, can imagine the time and the forethought and the equipment that went into photographing that one split second in history. The posing of the subjects and placement of the camera, the lens, the huge lights that had to be positioned well and cabled together with the others so that when the camera release was hit, they would all flash at the same time. The artistic patience waiting for just the right second for that train to come into the picture and then flash. And then one negative becomes one photograph, which becomes countless prints located on walls in homes and offices around the world. The Transfiguration, too, tells of an extended flash of divine light that illuminated Jesus of Nazareth in a new way. And the picture has been imprinted not on thick paper to mat and frame and hang on walls, but imprinted in our minds and in our hearts to transfigure our own lives. So what does this story have to say about Jesus and about us? First, let's think about what it says about Jesus that's different. The story clarifies his identity. The previous chapters in Luke, we've been learning about this on Wednesday nights in our Bible study on Luke, have been all about people questioning Jesus' identity. And then we get to this passage in chapter 9 where we see who Jesus is. So all these stories that have led up to this time, we've seen people who are surprised or blessed or healed or strengthened or encouraged or even angered by Jesus' words and actions. In fact, we're almost to the end of this, of a large section of Luke's gospel, because in just a few verses at Chapter 9, verse 51, we see that Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And in a few days on Ash Wednesday, we'll be turning our faces toward Jerusalem with Jesus as we begin the season of Lent. But up on this mountain with this big flash of light, we have Moses representing the law Elijah representing the prophets, and they stand with Jesus as a testament to his importance. Jesus' face changes and his clothes become dazzling white as God's glory shines into, through, and out of him. Now, if you're a skeptic, this might bring these kinds of questions to your mind. Well, how did Moses and Elijah get there? And how did Peter and James and John recognize them because they didn't have pictorial history books at the time? What would they have had to say to Jesus about his departure or his exodus, as the Greek word is, even though Moses knew a little bit about an exodus? It's it's a more recent tendency in the history of Christianity to start asking these scientific questions. And if we do get too detailed or too focused on these sorts of questions, we end up missing the point. 
like Peter did again? These sleepy disciples, Peter and John and James, may have wiped their eyes to try to figure out what they were seeing, but the sense is that it was so mysterious that they just weren't sure. And so Peter, not knowing what he is saying, it said, we're told, wants to plant on the mountain three tents, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses, as if he wants to just stay there. He wants to rest in that flash of light, in that beautiful, glorious experience, and just forget about all those people who are down at the bottom of the hill. Forget about the fact that Jesus has just said about eight days earlier that he would undergo undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus has just said this. And perhaps it was Peter's misplaced awe that beckoned another sign of God's presence. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Though this whole story is shrouded in a cloud of mystery, this much becomes clear. Jesus is God's chosen son. Listen to him. Not Peter babbling. Not Caesar, who many others called Lord in that day. Maybe not even so much to Moses and Elijah. Listen to Jesus. Writer Charles Swindoll once found himself with too many commitments in too few days, and he got nervous and tense about it. He said he was snapping at his wife and their children, choking down his food at mealtimes, feeling irritated at the unexpected interruptions through the day. And he writes this in his book called Stress Fractures. Before long, things around our our home started reflecting the pattern of my hurry-up style. So for everyone, it was becoming unbearable. He remembers after supper one evening the words of their younger daughter, Colleen. She wanted to tell him something important that had happened to her at school that day, and she began hurriedly saying, Daddy, I want to tell you something, and I'll tell you really fast. And Swindoll says suddenly he realized her frustration, and he answered her, Honey, you can tell me, and you don't have to tell me really fast. Say it slowly. And she said, Then listen slowly. Listening slowly is not easy. It's not easy for us with each other. It's not that easy to listen to God's chosen son slowly. It means that we have to do something about our own pace. We have to slow it down ourselves. We have to let go of some things that we like to think, spend our time thinking about or doing so that we can tune in to God. It means taking the energy to open our minds and our hearts to allow God's light to re-enter when we feel swallowed in darkness. Our Sunday school class is reading together a book called Dance Lessons. 
Now, yes, this is a Baptist church, and yes, this book is called Dance Lessons, and it's written by a Baptist. But the subtitle is more specific, Moving to the Beat of God's Heart. It's about spiritual practices and spiritual discipline. And in it, the author, Jeannie Miley, speaks of the welcoming prayer taught to her by its author, Thomas Keating, Father Thomas Keating. So I want to read this prayer for you. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, settle down. If you want to, if you want to put your hands in a position on your legs of, of physical openness, feel free to do that as well. And pray this prayer as I read it. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen. One of the things I love about this prayer is it reminds us of Jesus. Jesus was welcoming in this way to all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. He had let go of his desire for power and control, his desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure, and he let go of his desire for survival and security. What would happen if we did that too? To release these desires of the ego and to become our true selves sounds like a great way to live. It's the way Jesus lived. And as we seek to listen to him and to live like him, we learn to let go of some things so that we can welcome others and live a more obedient, God-centered life. One of the challenges I have with this prayer, though, is is letting go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. You know, often we're told that's the only thing we can change. We can't change another person. We can't control what somebody else does. All we can do is change ourselves. But what I hear here is grace. That God accepts us as we are. God welcomes us as we are. The way God welcomed Jesus and called him my chosen son. Jesus lived with integrity. He didn't just preach, he lived out his words. And when we do the same, we call it following Jesus. 
Jeffrey Tribble says, Following Jesus, I believe that we must be clear about our identity, resolute in our mission, and intentional in our spiritual formation. Three things. Clear about our identity, resolute in our mission, and intentional in our spiritual formation. Now, if I'm clear about my identity, I recognize myself in Peter and John and James, sleepy, on the mountain, really wanting to be there with Jesus, but just feeling like I'm not fully focused. One day, a preacher was well into his sermon when he noticed his young son standing near the edge of the balcony. The boy was throwing little balls of paper onto the heads of people in the congregation. And the pastor was about to command his son to stop when the boy called out to his father encouragingly and preemptively, Don't worry, Dad. You just keep preaching and I'll keep them awake. (laughs) We want to build tents and we want to stay where we are, stay in the light we perceive. But Jesus won't let us sleep. Jesus won't let us be stagnant. Immediately following this story, you may have noticed that it ended with the disciples not saying anything about what they had experienced. Now, could you imagine? I would really want to tell some people. But what they do when they they go down from the mountain and they find that a father who says that his son is struck with demons, what I might call seizures is what it sounds like, Jesus healed the boy while the other disciples could not. And he answers, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here, he said to the father. And while he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. When's the last time you were astounded at the greatness of God? Such awe doesn't come as often as I would like. I don't know about you. And it seems to be only when we pause to welcome it. This morning I looked out the sky and it was orangish, salmonish, pinkish, and it was just beautiful, this whole big section. And that was awe-inspiring for me. When I see the snow on the mountains, that strikes awe within me. When I hear some of you volunteer to do something for someone else or for the church, when I pause... I think, wow, you know, that person didn't have to do that. How generous. And that inspires awe in me as well. You think about what inspires awe in you. It's different for for each of us. Can we pause to welcome it? Three beginning drivers were in the car with an instructor. 
and each would have 30 minutes behind the wheel. When the first student completed his time, the instructor asked him to change places with one of the others, and the student gripped the wheel tightly, staring straight ahead. He said in a shaky voice, Should I stop the car? And obviously the answer is yes, yes, stop, welcome, let go. There are crocuses popping up out of the soil. That gives me hope. But it's a reminder that even on the coldest days of winter, that sunshine still pulls them up and still opens them up, just like us. The light of the transfiguration pulls us up and out and opens us to newly experience this God of transfiguration. When we let ourselves enjoy what God gives us with awe, we are propelled to act to move forward resolutely in mission, as Tribble says. Churches share a common mission to be Christ together. It's not easy. Our differences and our imperfections impede our progress because we are imperfect, the organization is imperfect. We do not act as we should always, and yet each week we pray To our God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That prayer reminds us that until we forgive, we do not feel fully forgiven and ready to walk down the mountain and try again. One last story. A boy had saved up his money for ice skates waiting for the pond to freeze over. And finally, when it did, he got out on the ice along with others on that wintry day. Well, he'd never skated before. And one person, after watching him fall multiple times, ending up with some scrapes on his face and seeing the blood and tears mingled together, this person skated over to the boy and helped pick him up and said, Son, why don't you quit? You're going to kill yourself. And the boy brushed his tears from his eyes and he said, I didn't buy these skates to learn how to quit. I bought them to learn how to skate. And I think that's a good reminder for us, too, that we don't want to learn how to quit. We have tools. We have skates, maybe. We have tools out there with which we can practice forming our spirits a little closer into God's image. We have three days until Lent begins. Mardi Gras inspires us to get it out of our system if we have to. Party safely. And then take seriously the Lenten season that begins Wednesday. It's time for us to adjust our schedules, to take time and energy to pay attention to Jesus to place ourselves in the situation of Peter and John and James, awe-inspired but still human. And remember, too, that this is just a snapshot of them, of Peter and John and James. 
Peter kind of babbling on, oh, let's, um, let's build tents here, Jesus, and, and we can have one for each of you, and just, you know, uh, well, still human. But later, later in Peter's life, he experiences the Holy Spirit coming into his life and others' lives in a powerful way on the day we call Pentecost. And these three men became powerful witnesses for Jesus. And so it makes me wonder, if we practice awe, and if we practice obedience, who's to say that that same power won't act in us as well? Let's pray together. Holy One, you have created us for yourselves, and we are restless until our hearts find rest in you. Be within us, work within us, guide us, forgive us, and help us to show others your love and grace and forgiveness as well. Inspire awe in us, O Lord, as we stop and look and listen. And help us to be obedient to whatever you say. We pray in the name of the one who continues to speak through your spirit. Amen.